Welcome to the National Presbyterian Church Podcast. I'm Pastor Ray Hilton, and I'd like to personally say how thrilled we are to share our sermon with you this week. If you feel encouraged by our messages, we invite you to hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. Now, let's go to the National Presbyterian Church Sanctuary and hear the word of the Lord. The scripture reading today is from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. There were also those who said, we are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards, and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. And there were those who said, we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been oppressed. We are powerless and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them. And I said to them, as far as we were able, we have bought back our Jewish kindred who had been sold to other nations. But now you are selling your own kin, who must then be bought back by us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop this taking of interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them take an oath to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Malcolm, I want to thank you for reading today's scripture. And we do want to welcome everyone here this morning. If this is your first time here at National Presbyterian Church and you're here in person, we're glad you're here. And we equally extend a a warm welcome to those of you who are online. You are very much a part of our community. It's good to see the children from National Presbyterian School, the parents, the board members, some of the teachers. Just really glad that you're here with us today. Because today is, as as Dr. Fox says, it's a special day in the life of our church and our school. Every October, this congregation and school, we pause together and we acknowledge and celebrate the important relationship between our church and school. 
Some of you may not know this, but in 1969, visionary leaders from this church, leaders of the National Presbyterian Church, established the National Presbyterian School to provide, in their words, quality early childhood education. And in the almost five months that I've been here as senior pastor, I've had the opportunity to walk on the campus, walk through the halls. I've met some of the teachers. I've met some of the students, many of the board members. I've met some of the parents. I meet regularly with, with head of school, Mr. Lester, and uh, Todd, as chaplain, comes to our staff meetings every Tuesday. And it's evident to me a relative outsider that National Presbyterian School is passionate about launching the first decade of children's lives filled with purpose and compassion. It's evidence. You, you just walk around the campus and you get the sense that this school cares about what they do. The school has five core values that I think helps to shape the culture of their community. They have values of love, values of respect, responsibility, honesty, and safety. These are values that I think will serve any community, not just a school, but any community in this nation would do well to live by these values. And so for the past 54 years, the school and this church remain passionate. National Presbyterian Church has a mission. It's a mission to, together, to make disciples that would serve the world. It's a very compelling mission, and together the school and the church are seeking to impact the lives of their respective constituents. In terms of the school, it would be their students, the children, the families, and in terms of the church, it's in terms of the children, the youth, the adults, and it, together our community. To what end? Is it just to make money? Is it just to be institutions in name only? No. The church and the school together, we, we exist, and in many ways we coexist, because we're about the business of shaping leaders for tomorrow. We're about the business of impacting our community and the world. And as we celebrate this special day, I also want you to think with me this morning about another community from the fourth century, roughly 24, 2,500 years ago, 2,500 years ago BC. What can we learn from the missteps of this community that we just heard read in the scriptures, where did they go wrong? You see, I believe that communities, whether it's a church or a school, one could even constitute the family as a community, a town, even a nation. These communities are what I call fragile ecosystems because they can be degraded. Nothing is given because of where we are today. We must be vigilant, we must be caring and concerned because communities can be degraded for many reasons. And let me share some of those reasons with you. 
Communities are degraded when that community loses its core values. When that community is populated with a kind of leadership that is spineless, that has no courage, that has no vision, a dereliction of duty as leaders. Communities get degraded when there is a loss of respect for people and their differences. When communities cannot weather economic or health or political crises, they're often imperiled. They're imperiled by the inability to adapt to change. Wealth disparities, lack of compassion. Communities lose their way when self-preservation trumps communal preservation. And so it behooves us then to remind ourselves as to what is a healthy community. And I believe we could sum it up this way, that healthy, robust communities seek and embrace the value of the common good. Let me say that again. Healthy communities, you can see them a mile away. They seek and embrace the value of the common good. I think back years ago when I was serving a congregation in Western Pennsylvania, and I met and still believe two of the finest people that I've ever met, Tom and Barb Robinson, lived their lives as professional people and yet never forgot the community in which they lived. And Tom often said, service is the rent you pay for living in a community. Think about that. Service. And if you're living in a community, what's the rent that you're paying? When Tom died, his bulletin had that, that, that same sentence on the front of it because he lived by that credo. I actually believe that the, term, the, the, the statement was original with him until I was reading Marion Wright Edelman's biography, and she mentions that phrase, and I found out she, the founder of the Children's Defense Fund, coined this phrase. It's the service you pay for living in a community. In other words, contributing to your community, your school, your church, your city, your family, your nation, it adds value. It's sustaining. It's life-giving to the well-being of the community in which you live. Sadly, this is not always the case today. This is not the case in our reading today. What happened? What factors degraded this community? Well, if you have your Bibles open or you want to look at the text from your bulletin, we read in the opening lines that there was this great outcry among the Jewish people. If you've been with us the last few Sundays, we've been reading through parts of the book of Nehemiah. And we noticed immediately that as the people of God returned from their captivity back to Jerusalem, their city was in ruins. And as a community, they came together. They banded together and said, this cannot go on. We are going to rebuild the wall. And immediately, they were met with opposition from the outside. 
In many ways, the opposition actually, instead of driving them apart, it drew them together in a more determined way. What we're reading off today is not opposition from outside. The opposition was internal. So these are family members. These are people cut from the same cloth who are now fragmenting. Why? And you heard it in the reading. There are four very serious concerns that they were, that they were repeating. I call it the quartet of woes. They were crying out because of starvation. There just wasn't enough food. And you have families with children who are hungry, and the families are crying out, and they're saying, if we don't eat, we can't live. But they're also selling their property for food. Just how desperate their situation had become. A famine was in the land, and in order to get money to buy food, they were selling off their property. But not only that, they were collateralizing their property so as to get money to pay the Persian Empire taxes. They were in a desperate situation, but to make it even worse, things were so horrible that they were forcing their children into temporary slavery to pay off debts. And I believe that you can tell a lot about a family, you can tell a lot, a lot about a community, you can tell a lot about a nation when you look at how they treat their most vulnerable, the elderly and the children. How did these woes, these pain points, how did it affect the members, or let me say some members of that community? Well, again, if you're looking at the text in verse 5, they felt powerless. Powerless, that's a, that's a colorful word in the Hebrew language because it suggests that they felt unseen. They felt they were non-existent. They felt voiceless, without status, without influence. They had no one to speak on their behalf. Powerless, what a, what a horrible way to feel. Have you ever felt that way before? Has life ever turned a certain way against you and that's how you feel? That's how these people felt. And they were also homeless. He said, how could they be homeless? Well, remember now, they're selling their property to buy food. They are mortgaging their property to raise money to pay their debt, their, their, their taxes. And over time, they were losing property that had been handed down from generation to generation. And on their watch, it was being taken away. And in the midst of this crisis where people are suffering, I ask myself the question, what then do leaders do? When people are being used and abused, how should leaders respond? Respond. Let's just look very briefly at Nehemiah's response. Because one of the first words that pops out of the page is that it says that Nehemiah, when he heard, when he saw, when he understood what was going on, he said, I was angry. And I thank God for leaders everywhere with a pulse. I thank God for leaders who are outraged at moral, at, at injustice. Leaders who are willing to stand up and say, this is not right. This kind of behavior must not 
stand. Nehemiah also responded with courage. He responded with courage. He courageously confronted these nobles and these, these officials. And we read in the text that he brought a charge against them. Now, this is a very, very deliberate word. Today, we would hear it as he brought a suit against them, charging them for their mistreatment of, their, of the people in their community. Now, this was a risky move. I say courage because this was a risky move because Nehemiah, from the beginning of the reading, needed powerful people, wealthy people, to stand with him so as to complete the rebuilding of the wall. And he was running the risk of alienating these people. It's quite possible these people could have said, you know what, Nehemiah, we're done with you. We will not put up with your insults and your attempt to sue us. And they could have jumped into their fancy vehicles and drove back up to their mansions on the hill and just turned on the alarm system and forget about the world. But Nehemiah took a risk. What I love in terms of what he was doing, he was prioritizing the needs of people even over the project to rebuild the wall. Good leaders put people before projects. Good leaders put people before programs. But Nehemiah was also transparent. And notice what he says in verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm doing the same thing that these nobles and these, these officials are doing. I am also lending money to people who don't have money. I am lending money to people who are unable, who are in desperate straits. And Nehemiah says, let us. Don't you love that? He wasn't pointing fingers at these people. He was also pointing back at himself. And he says, let us stop taking interest. Nehemiah was man enough, humble enough to admit that his actions were contributing to the problem. Good leaders are transparent. Nothing to hide. This is not about looking pretty. This is about being effective and owning up when we're messing up. And that's what he did. And then he issued this famous call to action in verse 11. And he says to them, nobles and the officials, restore this very day. And I love that about him, the urgency of the moment. He didn't say to them, you know what, we're going to have to call a special commission to do a six-month review and try to understand why these problems are happening. You don't do that when people are hurting. You don't do that when people are suffering. And Nehemiah said to them, restore to them this very day. Restore their fields. Restore their vineyards. Restore their olive orchards, their houses. The interest that you earned on the backs of these people, return it. The grain, the wine, the oil that you've been exacting from them. And amazingly, these powerful people humbled themselves and they admitted their wrong. They admitted their, their complicity in this wrongdoing. And this is what they said in verse 12. They said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. 
And you hear the language of us and them. And that's another clue that the community is degrading. They're losing their way. You have the haves, you have the have-nots. And it's the us and the them. But these leaders humbled themselves and they said to Nehemiah, we will do as you say. And Nehemiah called the priests. You don't want to lie to a priest, right? Nehemiah called the priest and made them take an oath in front of the priest. And if that were not enough, Nehemiah walked up to them and he grabbed his robe and he acted out a prayer. And he said, may God do to you. He shook his robe and said, may God do to you what I'm doing to this robe, that God would shake you and empty you out if you say you're going to do it and you don't do it. People said, amen. We are going to do it. And I've been pondering this text because it rings with such amazing connection to the 21st century communities in which we find ourselves. Now, take a look at this picture because I want to make sure you recognize this picture. What this picture illustrates for you and me, you may not see it just yet, but this picture illustrates for us that there is nothing new under the sun, that in every culture and in every generation, there are these people who will exploit the vulnerabilities of others in a time of crisis so as to enrich themselves. And so this picture was taken from a storage unit in Tennessee during March of 2020. COVID-19 was taking lives shutting down churches and schools and businesses. Nobody was going anywhere because we didn't know what was going on. It didn't even have a, a vaccine yet, and we were all wearing masks because we don't know what was going on. Nobody could find hand sanitizers and toilet paper. And I remember very distinctly driving out to the supermarkets and the stores trying to buy even one bottle of hand sanitizer, trying to buy one set of toilet paper and there were nowhere to be found. Empty shelves, Amazon sold out. Do you remember those days? And here comes these two brothers from Tennessee. These two, in a country like ours, we would maybe call them entrepreneurial. They drove over 13,000 miles through the whole state of Tennessee, through the whole state of Kentucky, and they bought all the remaining hand sanitizers, toilet paper, antibacterial wipes, and they stashed these in-demand products in their garage. They opened up several self-storage units and they stuffed them full, and then they went on Amazon and were selling Hand sanitizers, $70 a pop. Amazon reported them. And the state attorney general, both in the state of Kentucky and in Tennessee, went after these brothers, exposed them, their faces, their pictures, their storage units were splashed all over the news back in 2020, and forced them to donate all of it to charity, all of it. One person, outraged, wrote on what was Twitter, what was then Twitter. 
And this is what this person wrote. There is a special place in hell for hoarders of toilet paper and hand sanitizer <laughs> or price gouging during this national emergency. There were some other choice statements that I would never want to read. <laughs> what these brothers did, though, is endemic of something within all of us, our human nature. What these brothers did is representative of what happened in Israel during their national crisis more than 2,400 years ago. You would think we would have learned a thing or two without a smidgen of conscience. They capitalized on their community's pain. We don't live in an agrarian society. Many of us don't even know really where our groceries come from. We just show up at the local grocery store and it's there. But I know you won't disagree with me when I tell you that there are human beings in our community, there are families in our community, there are people in this region who are in pain. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to God to be serving this congregation at this time in her history, and I mean that. National Presbyterian Church is a robust, ever-growing community that cares. And I just want to say publicly how grateful I am that this church and the National Presbyterian School take time out to make sandwiches, sandwiches for Martha's table because they're going to people who feel powerless, people in pain. I want it to be known how grateful I am for the people in this church who make these kits to encourage the men and women who serve in our military. I want it to be known how grateful I am that there are people in this church who are involved in helping and serving homeless families, men and women, through the Central Union Mission. God bless you for your time. God bless you for your efforts. God bless all of you for taking time to drive all the way down to the Unique Learning Center or to Little Lights to, to tutor vulnerable children. God bless you for your sacrificial giving of time and gifts and money to support Friendship Place. Thursday morning, I was at a breakfast down here at the Jewish synagogue in Macomb. The place was filled with people. And I heard stories of men whose lives were wrecked some of it by self-inflicted wounds and choices and other factors. And these men have a hope in the future because over 30 different churches in the district come together to put a dent in homelessness. So I want you to know that our school and our church, we are a robust community that Almighty God is using to make a difference. And you're doing the work of Jesus. You're doing the work of Jesus when you feed the hungry, when you care for orphans, when you care for vulnerable children. I would not be here, I would not be here if it were clear to me that this congregation 
is all about institutional survival. I have only one life to live, and I'm not going to give that life serving a community that it's all about itself, navel-gazing. I'm here today because I believe in what you believe, that we're about lifting up people who need the love of God. And so as a school and as a church, I want to call you, my brothers and sisters, to live lives of radical compassion. I want to call you to model your life after the life of Jesus. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Take a look at this passage from Matthew 9:35, where it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. And I love this line, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. There's that word again. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless. There is that word again, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus responded, and he wants our, his church, and he wants all of us to respond. And one of my prayer is that God would give us the grace to see people the way Jesus saw people. I'm praying that we will see the poor and the hungry and the neglected as he saw them, to see those who are powerless, to see those who are crushed by the circumstances of their lives. I'm calling us to compassion this morning. I'm calling us to compassion to love the orphan and the widow, to love the immigrant, to love those who believe they are unlovable. I'm calling us to compassion as a school and a church to love your neighbor as yourself. Reject self-righteousness. Reject complacency and that smug contentment that many of us feel when we like some cause on social media and we think we've done something. I'm calling us to compassion and action that if you see something, say something, do something. Be willing to step out of your comfort zone and get involved. I'm calling us to be whoever God calls you to be. Go wherever God might be calling you to go. Give whatever God might compel you to give and serve whomever God might lead you to serve. Why do that? Why do that? Because for some people, they associate the church with a building. For some people, they associate institutions as cold and lifeless. And when you step out and do these amazing things, you put skin on the name Jesus. You put skin on love. And many people will see your good works. And they will glorify God in heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's children say. Amen. Oh God, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, where there is discord, may we so love. Lord, may we give so as to receive. And may we serve those in need.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. We're glad that you could be with us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website at nationalprayers.org. That's nationalprayers.org. Help us spread the good news of the gospel by sharing our podcast with your friends and giving us a rating. If you haven't already, be sure to click the subscribe button. See you next week.